It's March of 2022 and explorers, not so different than those who had come before, scoured the seas for one of the most famous missing shipwrecks in history. The searchers had a general area of where to conduct their search in the Weddell Sea. The calculations and records they had were well kept. But as with lots of historical records, allowances had to be made for faulty equipment and potential human error. With drones and other equipment, researchers scanned a 150 square mile area over two weeks. And it was 10,000 feet below the surface that the crew, calling themselves Endurance 22, found the prize they sought. In the depths of the frigid water appeared the ghostly stern of a wooden ship, everything still preserved perfectly. As they shined their lights, they were stunned to see her name, still clear and visible after 106 years. Endurance 22 had found its namesake, the Endurance, famed explorer Ernest Shackleton's lost ship, everything frozen in time. The water had preserved the details in a way that looked as though they had fallen through some portal in time. Despite allowances made for serious error, the ship was found only four miles off from the original calculations made by Shackleton's captain and navigator. The icy conditions that had set the stage for one of the most impressive maritime survival stories in history had also preserved the ship in the most remarkable way. The ship lived up to her name, and though Shackleton never made it across Antarctica as he hoped and was trying, his story and his resilience showed he too is worthy of that word. Endurance. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. And we are continuing our Summer Shipwreck series with our next installment, the amazing survival story of Ernest Shackleton and the amazing crew of the Endurance. Ernest Shackleton was born in 1874 in County Kildare, Ireland, on a farm in Kilkea. His father, Henry and Henriette, had ten children, of which Ernest is the most well-known, and that's lucky for them as a family. His younger brother, Frank, would later be accused of stealing Ireland's crown jewels, and though he would be eventually exonerated, the jewels have never been recovered. They were the only two sons in the family. Though the Shackleton's lineage is English, Shackleton's mother was Irish, and he proudly proclaimed his Irish heritage for the rest of his life. His father, who started as a farmer, would eventually become a physician, but as the troubles brewed, the family took themselves back to a suburb of London. Shackleton's intelligence and love of literature would have led many to believe that he would have been into academia. His father wanted him to be a doctor. Instead, Shackleton would surprise everyone and head into the life of a merchant marine. He entered that service in 1890, and his colleagues and shipmates noted he would recite poetry to himself as he worked and was an overall man of high emotional intelligence. In fact, when I began my research into the Endurance's failed mission, I stumbled upon article after article on corporate blogs that pointed out the leadership capabilities of Shackleton. They claimed that the main reason behind his success was his emotional intelligence. Those characteristics make a leader able to salvage disaster and find success in total failure. 
Corporate propaganda aside, though I would never follow any of my bosses into Arctic exploration, I understand that Shackleton's calming confidence and empathy must have been quite consoling in a catastrophe. That thirst for knowledge led Shackleton to join an expedition to the Arctic in 1901. Determined to go, Shackleton began a networking campaign to find friends of the organizer, Sir Clement Markham. Shackleton befriended friends of Markham, who in turn recommended him. Markham was so impressed with the young man that he named him as third officer of the Discovery. Where Markham was confident, though, the ship's captain, Captain Robert Scott of the Royal Navy, was appalled to have a merchant mariner on his crew. The situation seemed to escalate when Captain Scott began to realize that the men seemed to prefer Shackleton to him. They were polar opposites in every regard, and there was this awkward tension growing. So when the discovery made it to Antarctica in 1902, I can imagine the ship's crew were speechless when Scott chose Shackleton to head toward the South Pole. These explorations would set up camp, and the sailors would try to entertain themselves as best as they could for months, creating small villages to pass the time. They weren't as well prepared as they should have been, so when Captain Scott Shackleton and Dr. Edward Wilson set out for the pole, things began falling apart very quickly. The trio began suffering from illnesses related to scurvy, and no one knew how to drive their sled dogs or keep them healthy. Shackleton was also suffering from a heart defect that weakened him significantly. When the group didn't make it to the South Pole and had to turn back, Scott would lump the blame at the feet of Shackleton for being too sick. Shackleton was tossed on a relief ship and would spend the rest of his life out doing the damage from Scott's assertions that he was just too weak. Instead of taking the loss, Shackleton decided to do what a lot of people do when they are just naturally petty. He would head back to the South Pole out of pure spite. Ernest began networking as he had before, working multiple jobs, including being a journalist, which he did not like at all, running for parliament and losing, and getting married. Emily Dorman would marry Shackleton in 1904, and though they spent a good time apart, she would fundraise and promote her husband's expeditions. Shackleton thanked her by having numerous affairs. Let's say it. I hate it when men. That's it. That's the sentence. With the help of his wife, Shackleton raised money for a second expedition aboard the Nimrod. He had to make some adjustments upon arrival and deviate from his original plan, including camping near the Discovery's old campground. Shackleton, upon learning that he couldn't handle sled dogs, switched his approach to try ponies. This was an absolute failure. What I've learned about Shackleton is that where he makes decisions from his own ineptitude, he is so beloved as a leader that he can somehow fumble his way to near success. Even though the ponies weren't suited for ice like dogs, they still made it within 97 miles of the pole before having to turn back. But they had to walk back. When his wife asked if he was disappointed that he didn't succeed, Shackleton stated, A live donkey is better than a dead lion. Captain Scott would eventually reach the South Pole, and though many scholars say Shackleton went back with endurance because his finances were dire, there is this part of me that believes that the main reason he did go was so that he could cross the whole continent of Antarctica just to stick it to Scott. Thus, the Trans-Antarctic Expedition would be born. Shackleton's fame helped him raise money for his next trip. In his writings, he notes that he started quietly working on the expedition up to a year in advance before advertising. 
Shackleton was not good with finances, and he was stumbling blindly to save himself. He was rubbing elbows at parties, giving lectures. Even so, by 1914, he had lost most of the backing he had been promised. But as always, he would rally and write glowingly of the donors who helped salvage his run, naming sections of his route and ships, and a very important lifeboat, after James Caird and Elizabeth Dawson Lambton, as though they were benches in Central Park or seats in a theater with a small plaque noting they were the favorite seats of benevolent millionaires. The man knew how to schmooze. He put out the all-call for the expedition in January of 1914, he received nearly 5,000 applicants. He narrowed that down to 56 men, which he then cut to a crew of 28. It was a donor named Dudley Docker who helped finance the purchase of Shackleton's newest vessel, the Endurance. In 1914, however, Shackleton was interrupted by another issue, World War I. The Great War was breaking out. Ocean liners were being put to work as hospital ships and supply ships by the Royal Navy. Shackleton reluctantly offered the endurance to the admiralty, but it was Winston Churchill himself who told Shackleton to carry on with the expedition. There are many areas in which Shackleton was weak in terms of preparation for these voyages. He decided to remedy it by studying as he would for an exam. He worked with whalers in the Weddell Sea to talk about the water and lands. With the large crew, Shackleton figured he could send teams out with the dogs using the endurance as home base. He departed after the crew did on a passenger ship. He would meet them all in Buenos Aires. And as the Endurance headed south of the fishing island of South Georgia, it headed into a misty rain. Further north than they expected, the crew spotted ice, growlers floating in the water. They carried on, noting how well the ship performed in those rough seas. For weeks, the crew pushed through to the deep Weddell Sea. But it's on January 19th that the ship becomes encased in pack ice during a gale. The winds and seas surround the boat. It's heavy, and the ice is pushing into the sides of the boat. For a week, the crew watched, wondering if the ice that was freezing in large pieces all around them would break apart. They soon came to a horrifying conclusion. Not only was the ice just surrounding the ship, it was pushing inwards and crushing it. To escape would require a change in winds and a climb in temperatures which were unseasonably low. They found some cracks in the ice, but it was deemed too risky to move the boat. Shackleton was concerned, but opts to keep the crew working under the conditions. Crews went out hunting for seal meat for the dogs and the men whose rations were being carefully monitored. Ship watches were continued despite the ship drifting only wherever the ice took it. Even the scientists on board began collecting specimens as though this were a normal planned part of the expedition. The goal seemed to be to keep everyone busy as they waited for something to happen. But the something they were met with was the leaning of the ship three degrees as the ice pushed inward. Attempts to push through the ice were made, but it was too much. Shackleton was going to have to make a very unpopular decision. The use of coal and the use of his men wasn't worth the risk of damaging the ship. He called it quits and called off ship watches. The crew had to have known at this moment that they were trapped in ice drifting in the Weddell Sea until they were able to be rescued. If they were able to be rescued. Ernest wrote in his logs that we must wait for spring, which may bring us better fortune. 
If I had guessed a month ago that the ice would grip us here, I would have set up a base at one of the landing places at the Great Glacier. They set up camp as best they could, building what they called dog glues for the sled dogs that were still surviving. Four dogs and the ship's kitchen cat were shot, and though we as modern listeners likely react very strongly to that, myself included, we have to remember that the bullet in the head was more humane than allowing the dogs to suffer in frozen wilderness, slowly starving. Some crew members tried to rig their wireless to hear any messages on the night sky from the Falklands, but the machine never worked. The ship wasn't entirely abandoned, but there was a quiet, lingering truth. The ice was going to slowly crush that ship, and eventually she would sink. For months, they watched. Down in the southern hemisphere, the winter came when their families appreciated the warmth of June, July, and August— the ship was used as a winter station when the storms blew over them. Shackleton had to keep going, learning to adjust his palate to seal meat and crab eaters. But what is truly fascinating is how the scientists, the biologists, the geologists, the meteorologists just shifted the focus of their experiments to whatever was around them. The meteorologists rigged recording stations over the stern of the ship Shackleton noted that the biologists were collecting samples from whatever they could find, and the geologists were thrilled at their finding some pebbles in the stomachs of some penguins. The busy work kept them sane. Inside the ship, they created some new floors in between levels to provide warmth. The men started happily referring to the new quarters as the Ritz. The excellent record-keeping by Frank Worsley, the captain of the Endurance, showed that they were painfully aware of the damage the ice was doing to the ship— but they hoped to preserve in keeping it as a shelter. Worsley recorded hearing noises that sounded like hammers that was undoubtedly the ice pressing against the ship. They also continued to monitor the depth through the ocean floor. They limited use of coal for the time being, using just enough to keep the boilers warm. Others worked to train the dogs, but slowly the dogs began to get ill from intestinal worms or other ailments. The men clung on like this for months with Shackleton trying his best to keep the men occupied. But in September, the ship began to finally lose itself to the physics of the ice pressure. Meat was also running low for the men and the dogs, as the animals nearby, the penguins, the seals, had learned to avoid the settlement for fear of being hunted. The ship was turning on its side, and even as they began to pump out the water that was starting to come in, it was becoming very clear that eventually... She would founder. It was on October 27th, at 5 p.m., that Shackleton gave the order to abandon ship. In the weeks that followed, Shackleton made the devastating decision to kill the rest of the dogs. Writing that it broke his heart, but he made sure the death was instant for all. It was the worst job that we had throughout the expedition, and we felt their loss keenly, he wrote. The men would have to survive on ice, and Shackleton knew he'd have to go across the ice to take lifeboats to land. It would be risky, but they had to get closer to a piece of land, any piece of land. They picked Elephant Island, 100 miles north. It would be dangerous, but being on land would increase the survival of all while they searched for help. It took months to plan. There were three boats, the Stamcombe Wills, Dudley Docker, and the James Care. The crew piled in them at daybreak on April 8th. It had been a tense night. The ice around them was starting to weaken and crack. 
The men pushed off at daybreak and rode out into the great unknown, wondering if they would safely make it to a remote island, far off from any fishing routes. Even though it was for all intents and purposes summer, the weather was still frigid and they were now shelterless out on the open seas. They connected the boats together but monitored distance between them so they wouldn't constantly bump into one another. What ensues next sounds less like a life-saving adventure and more like parents and teachers monitoring a field trip. One of the sailors kept getting violently seasick, and he didn't want to take an oar. That same sailor had also wrapped himself in the warmth of more animal skins because he was sick, and the others began to resent him, making sure to eat openly in front of him, taunting him by chewing loudly in hopes that the seasick sailor would get even sicker. At one point, Captain Worsley nearly lost it when he was continually asked by all the men what time it was. It was clearly the maritime equivalent of a child repeatedly asking, are we there yet? They tried to create covers over the boats by pulling skin on the opening for some warmth, but it made navigating difficult. There was a big panic when ice began striking the sides of the ship. Thankfully, the winds worked in their favor and they safely made it out of the ice without being smashed. For days, they pushed forward. Thirst was becoming an issue, but on April 14th, the boats made it on to Elephant Island. Well, they were thrilled, and everyone congratulated Worsley and Shackleton. Yes, they were on an island with clean water and a new supply of sea life to hunt, but the fact was is that they would have to do one more impossible feat to survive. Of those three boats, the James Caird was the strongest and most likely to be able to travel the furthest. Shackleton and Worsley knew their best chance of rescue was 800 miles away in South Georgia. So five men, Frank Worsley, Tom Crean, John Vincent, Timothy McCarthy, and Harry McNish, alongside Shackleton, would take the boat along stormy seas. The crew improvised tools to make changes to the Caird, adding a makeshift deck for shelter and sealing their work with seal's blood and lamp wick. They removed other parts from the other two boats to create a mast with cells to navigate her. They loaded her with supplies and lit out for South Georgia on April 24, 1916. The crew decided to head north to head up and over to South Georgia to avoid ice. Shackleton and the five rotated their charges to allow for three to be on duty, with three others resting underneath the makeshift deck for shelter. The boat was so small that Shackleton noted the men had to basically crawl over one another to get their post a shift change. Now, if you were on TikTok, do you remember last year when we were all watching the videos from the Arctic cruises running through the wild and unpredictable waters of Drake Passage? Imagine, if you will, traversing that in a lifeboat. They made it about 270 miles before running into bad weather that flooded the boat. Their skin was raw, and they were weary as they bailed water out of the boat when it took it on in the storm. The crew was in misery and various stages of giving up when they caught sight of land on May 8th. On May 10th, they landed near Cave Cove, dragging themselves from the boat. It only took a bit of examination to realize that James Caird was not capable of reaching any of the island's welling stations. They just couldn't risk it in that boat. Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean would begin crossing South Georgia Island on foot while the rest of their crew stayed with the boat. With no maps, they had to traverse across the mountains to get to Stromness Welling Station. 
They were haggard and bearded. A watchman at the welling station saw them arrive. The station foreman, Matthias Anderson, described them as bearded, grizzly-like men, filthy and worse for the wear. But they spoke like gentlemen. One of the men, he noted, an Englishman, asked for the factory's manager. When a foreman told him the manager's name, the Englishman smiled. He knew him. They took him to the door of the manager, who looked confused. Who are you? he asked. In a raspy voice, the man whispered, Shackleton. The factory owner nearly collapsed. Ernest Shackleton, who had been missing in the Arctic, was alive. What no one else realized at the time, so was his entire crew. In the months following the rescue, the 22 castaways had to wait for ships to be able to reach Elephant Island. Many rescue attempts failed, but in August, a ship began coming toward the men, but they couldn't get a smoke signal up. But no matter. The boat was headed directly for them, and very quickly they heard a familiar voice. Are you all all right? Shackleton had made it back. Many had given up hope. It had been four months. But he was back. He didn't lose a single man. Shackleton never made it to the South Pole. He never made it across Antarctica. He tried another expedition, but the issues with his heart that had caused trouble for him on the discovery would end his life in 1922. He would suffer a heart attack in Rio de Janeiro, dying at the age of 47. He was deeply in debt, and the limited money in his estate was given to his wife. Shackleton never accomplished what he had tried to do, but his calm demeanor kept every single man on that boat alive. The last note in the log during the rescue after the 22 castaways were saved from Elephant Island reads simply, All well. At last. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast where we cover some of God's favorites, meaning the people who really were God's favorites, or those who at least thought they were. It is shipwreck summer over here, and we are having a blast. And of course, next time, get ready. Get out your Gordon Lightfoot as we cover the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Sources for today's episode include Alfred Lansing's Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage, Ernest Shackleton's book, South, Joshua Horn's great work on Discerning History, a website where he's got all these other voyages that Ernest Shackleton did in great detail. So very helpful. Go check those out if you're interested. Thanks to everyone who donates to our Patreon account. We use the money on there to pay for books, get behind paywalls, and to handle other streaming costs associated with podcasting, you know, music rights, and whatnot. Join us over on TikTok. My handle is Melissa Fairlady. We're having a great shipwreck summer over there, and we're going to continue that. And hey... See you next time, friends.